Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see the room beginning to be filled this morning, especially after the men's retreat. So for the guys who went to the retreat, thank you so much for being led by the Spirit to go. For those of you who didn't, several of you could not, and I'm not sure about all the others, but again, always thank us for, thank you for being led by the Spirit, and especially as you come to class today and every day that we have class. This still continues to be, for me, the terminology that for some have disagreed the greatest hour of glory upon the earth. <laughs> Thems who are not teaching the class may not agree with that. <laughs> but he who teaches as a class does think that. So again, thank you so much. There's, and we'll find out this morning and next week the absolute, well, I can't say absolute, but the significance of being a part of learning the word of God. There is a place for your study and your personal reading and meditation upon the Word that is vital. And that's the most basic issue of our relationship with Christ through the Word by the Spirit. Personal reading, studying, and meditating. That's the issue most fundamentally. The second level of that is being taught the Word. And so the Holy Spirit gives teachers to the church. We see that in 1 Corinthians. We see that in Ephesians. He gives teachers to the church. For what purpose? To take His Word and to open it by the Spirit and to begin enlarging the understanding and the application and the meaning and etc. in our lives. So that which we have read during the week and have contemplated and have meditated upon is expanded during this particular period of time. And hopefully what happens in these meetings is this, that we're not just gaining a knowledge of the word in our heads, you know, a cerebral understanding of what the Word of God is, although we need that. But we don't want to, I hope that that's not the essence of it. I hope the essence of it is this, that as I hear and understand and receive knowledge and understanding of the Word, the Holy Spirit takes that which He has just given me and translates that into a living, vibrant experience, face-to-face fellowship, relationship with God himself by the Spirit. And so God is using this time to continue the great work of transforming us or conforming us into the image of his Son by the transforming of our minds through the washing of the water of the Word. And so as you come to class, And, of course, in the preaching of the Word. But there's something different about the teaching of the Word. And as you come to class, whether I'm teaching, Bill Treby's teaching, Evan May's teaching, no matter who's teaching, Ronald Laitano, whoever it is, as we come to class, hopefully we come with this thought. Father, give me a greater personal knowledge of, experience of you. I want to know you more. Memory Philippians 3.10, oh, that I may know him. Paul cries out that I may know Christ. And if anyone knows Christ, who knows him? 
the Apostle Paul, and yet the cry of his heart, even this many years later, as he's in prison and writing this epistle, having been in ministry for about maybe 30, 25 to 30 years at this point, he cries out, oh, that I may know this God. And you would say, well, Paul, you know him. Oh, I don't know but a molecule. I don't know but a molecule of God. And the cry of our hearts this morning and every time we gather together in every moment of our life. Father, today as I get up, that I may know you more. That I may experience you more. That I may have a great anointing and outpouring of your spirit today. Amen. That's where we are to be as people of God. Father, thank you for opening your word to us. Father, to save us by the word through the spirit. And then to transform us by the word through the spirit. And then to bring us before your presence with great joy. As you have saved us and transformed us by your word through the spirit. Father, so we may be your everlasting people. Who enjoy face-to-face communion with you. Communication with you. Father, thank you for that. Father, we know that it is your word that is the basis of what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Well, this morning we leave the Jordan River and we're going into the wilderness with Jesus to encounter the enemy. And so this morning we're in chapter 4 of Matthew. We will not finish chapter 4, these first 17, 11 verses. We won't finish them this morning. We'll do part of it today and part of it next week. So if there are questions and concerns that maybe we didn't cover or things you had on your mind, we'll just wait until next week and hopefully by then most of everything that we need to know or at least the Holy Spirit is telling us, at least through me, has been communicated. And if there's something else, then we can always go into that. So let's read the text this morning. The first 11 verses of chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. By the way, that should grab all of us, that one statement. That should really stop us. Again, may I take a brief moment out, and I know I do this, but I am compelled to do it. When we read the Word, let's not do this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, Oh, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He answered them, It's written, Man shall not bread, bread of only, but every word that comes. Okay, I read my word today. I read my word today. Well, technically you did. But technically you did not. So as we read the Word of God, whether you're on a year reading course or whatever, take your time and read it carefully giving the Holy Spirit opportunity to stop you in your tracks and say to you, for instance, I know you have five more chapters to read today, but stop and look at this one word or this one phrase or this one incident and let me tell you about me. And as I tell you about me, You will be learning about you. See, God doesn't have to tell me about me. He tells me about me by telling me about himself. And as I see him, the reflection of who I am becomes much clearer. Amen? So let me encourage you again. 
let's not just mechanically read the word, but read it with the great expectation, having asked the Holy Spirit to do this. Meet me. Speak to me. Encourage me. Overwhelm me. Cause me to be lifted up. Cause me to be amazed as the people were amazed with Jesus' teaching that they stood there literally (gasps) with their mouths open. Frank, Gloria, do you remember Toliati? Do you remember Toliati? How these men and women in Russia, Annette, were you there? And we remember Poland when we went to Poland in 88. How these people who had not heard the word before were like, (gasps) and you get a feeling and a thought and an experience a little bit of how they must have felt when Jesus came among them and taught them. Church, we've lost a lot of that because we take this word too much for granted today. When we read this word, we need to see that it is the Lord Jesus himself who is stopping speaking to us. It is he whom we are hearing. So let's start again. This is going to be a slow class today. I I think you can tell that. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not tempt or put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, begone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship Yahweh your God, and him only shall you worship. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to Jesus. So this morning, we rem- I re- you remember how I outlined the gospel in the beginning of this. I've outlined it in six major divisions. The announcement of the Messiah, remember in chapter 1 and 2. The presentation of the Messiah, chapter 3. This morning, the confrontation of the Messiah in chapter 4. So this is just an outline that I felt the Holy Spirit gave to me. There are many other ways of outlining this gospel as we know all the others. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the great confrontation of the Son of God. Verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I want us to begin this morning by seeing the absolute, and I spoke about this last Sunday to those of you who were here Sunday, and Benny Phillips talked to the men at the retreat in the same area. 
and hopefully we see this more and more, the absolute necessity and centrality of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers as to our submission to him and being led by him in any and every circumstance and situation, thought, word, and deed, all the time. We are those who are to be explicitly acknowledging and embracing and looking to and walking in and obeying, etc., etc., the voice, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Explicit acknowledgement. How many of you received that pamphlet that we gave out last Sunday? On an eight and a half, eleven by eleven, folded in half, eight and a half by five and a half, sixteen pages of references in the Holy uh, in the New Testament alone of the Holy Spirit. For those of you who did not receive it, uh, I, I think we can we either have more, or we can certainly produce more. But let me encourage you to get one of those. And here it is. Here it is a sixteen-page pamphlet of every verse in the New Testament. That makes reference to the Holy Spirit. I think it's extremely important to have that. Um, I thought it was. I felt the Holy Spirit wanted me to do this. And so we went ahead and did this and produced it. And the ladies in the office and Evan may work very hard on the arduous um, uh, deadlines because of the retreat to produce this for last Sunday. So if you don't have one, uh, go ahead and ask in the book nook. And if we don't have enough or whatever, I'm, I'm sure we can. What, not the book nook. Where do you, what is that other? Welcome center, wherever you get these things. So, first thing, Jesus is baptized by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit. We are saved by the Spirit. The very next thing that happens in Jesus' life is that he is going to put, I'm sorry, he is going to have the blessing of God's presence tested. How many of you have ever experienced After you got saved, all kind of stuff began to happen. How many of us have experienced after we hear something from the Holy Spirit and learn something from God, then all of a sudden we're tested? How many of us understand that whatever God is doing, and we have received a great revelation, we have seen a great work, we have had a great blessing, a prayer has been answered, whatever it is. And I warn people in my office regularly about this. You will be tested. And we'll see this morning, or at least maybe by next week, this word tested is to be proven. It's to be what the potter does to the clay as he molds it and makes it and smashes it and creates it into a viable, uh, what do you call it, uh, malleable a uh, piece of material to create a vessel of his honor. We will be tested. So by being anointed by the Spirit, Jesus, after being anointed by the Spirit, to fulfill his Adamic purpose. Remember why Jesus is anointed. He is anointed to fulfill the purpose of God that was initiated in Adam by God. Adam was to be God's agent who would image the glory of God upon the earth through his own obedience as he uh, obeyed and and, um, walked out the roles that God had given him in these three mandates. And that activity of obedience and and submission to God was to be passed on to his progeny. And the whole earth would be gradually filled with the presence of God as God's people 
were obedient and proclaiming the glory of God so that the very presence of God would fill the earth. And so Jesus came by the Spirit to be fulfilling God, that Adamic purpose. And the Spirit leads Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Why? You, you see, most of us would say, Jesus has been anointed. Now he's been declared by heaven to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of David, the royal priest. Let's get on with the ministry. Let's get going with the ministry and let's go into the cities and let's go into the towns and let's go into the byways of life and let's begin to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's typically the way we would have written it. Had man written this, it probably would have been written something of that sort. But you see, something extremely important has to happen before Jesus goes into the ministry, if you would, into the towns and into the villages. He has to face the same temptation of obedience to his obedience that Adam faced. In order for Jesus to fulfill his Adamic purpose, he has to be tempted by Satan and to overcome what Adam failed to do, to do what Adam failed to do. So why does the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? To do what Adam failed to do. What was that? When Adam was tempted by the devil, what happened? He failed. Remember in Genesis 2.17, the Lord says, of all the trees, remember all the trees, there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat of all the fruit of all these trees, but of that one tree, you shall not eat. Why? Because you see, in order to be God's obedient son, he has to have the opportunity to be tempted to disobey. Obedience is not obedience if there's no opportunity to disobey. Love is not love unless there's an opportunity to love, etc., etc. And so as Adam was given that mandate, don't eat of this tree, and tempted by the devil to eat of it, what happened? In Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. And so by disobeying, Adam rejected the Lord's offer of life, resulting in the penalty of death. Remember what the Lord said? In the day that you eat of it, what? You shall surely die. And when Adam disobeyed, death came into the world through Adam's disobedience. And so we see that here in the scripture. As a result of Adam's sin, all humanity came under the curse of death. Romans 5.12 tells us this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And do you have in your notes, in my brackets, in Adam? Do you have that in your notes? And so here is extremely, and we don't have time to teach this this morning, but here is an extremely basic theological understanding. It is called representation or federal headship. Adam and Eve were the first two people on earth. Where were we? Where were we? We were what? In Adam. And see, with God, Everything is a positional issue primarily, fundamentally, basically. 
everything is. And so mankind is damned or under the wrath of God. Why? Because we did something wrong? Because we sinned? No. The sin, the wrong, is simply the fruit. What is the root? The root is that we were in Adam, and Adam represented every person who would ever be born of the natural generation. And when Adam sinned, God declared, because of that federal headship, that representation, that all of mankind in Adam disobeyed God and sinned. Now, how many of us, let's be honest, how many of us don't think that's fair? Come on. Come on. Come on. Thank you. A couple of hands go up. There's only two people in here that think that's fair. You were condemned because of somebody else. Nobody thinks that's unfair? We know better. Come up. We know better. If Adam, an innocent man, a perfect man in the respect of no fault, no sin, living in a perfect place, I'm going to say this and people are going to criticize me, but I just want to make a point. No mothers-in-law. <laughs> no brothers and sisters. Just a perfect man and woman in a perfect place. And they're just given one temptation. And the first time they're tempted even once, what happens? They fail. Now, what does that say about, well, well, if I was there, I can tell you one thing, man, I would never have failed. No, no. What does that say? That every person... Unless we are infused with and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because I believe Adam did not have the Holy Spirit living in him. He had Jesus with him. Unless we're infused by the Holy Spirit, we're going to sin. And even when we are infused by the Holy Spirit, we still wind up what? Sinning. So what happens? In the sight of God, our condemnation is not on the basis of what we have done. What we have done is the fruit of the root. The root is that we were born out of Adam. And that's the position. Now, we may not like that, but on the other side, we'll see today or whenever we get to it, that our salvation is of the same doctrine, the same way of God's thinking. We were condemned in Adam... And then we were saved, how? In Christ. And so you see, it has nothing to do with anything that we have done. It has absolutely everything to do with God, with what God has done for us and in us, even before the foundation of the world, before we were even born into this world. God had already made a decision to put us into Christ. How? By taking us out of Adam and placing us into his last or second Adam to be saved so that we could receive the life of his son having been condemned by the disobedience of his first created son. Does this make sense to you? And so when we look at this doctrine, and remember we remember the doctrines of Reformed theology, you think, oh, well, that's not fair, whatever. If it were any other way, 
None of us in this room would ever have any hope to be saved. Do any of us think that by our good works or that we could have done anything, never, could we have lived any life that never sinned at all? Do any of you think that? No. And you see, once we have sinned even once, that's even discounting the whole nature of sin having been in Adam. But once we have sinned once, we are irrevocably and forever under the curse of God. It is an issue of manifestation of our true nature in Adam. When we began to sin, and even the issue of death itself, is a manifestation that we were born in Adam. And so Jesus must go into the wilderness to undo what Adam did by facing the same temptation that Adam faced. For God's people to be freed from the curse of death, divine justice demanded that another man was, who was innocent and obedient had to pay the penalty of God's wrath upon his own people because of their sin. 519 of Romans, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Now you may be asking, well, when are we going to get into the temptations? If we don't create a background for this, you're going to miss the whole issue. The most fundamental issue of all of these temptations is not what Jesus does, but that what he reveals about himself and our position in him because of what he does. All humanity, as all humanity died in Adam, for God's people, in order for God's people to live, they're going to have to be represented in the Son of God, not only by, but in the Son of God, in union with Christ, who would take to himself a human body and soul. This is the incarnation. And so, in order for God's justice to be uh, uh, appeased, if you would, for his people's sake and for the purpose of God being maintained and, and achieved in creating us to be his image bearers. In order for that to happen, another man has to be going, has to go through the same kind of temptation. Another man who can represent all of us and who is the only one who can represent all of humanity? The eternal son of God. Because he is worth all of us. And because he has created all of us. And why can, and not only can he represent us, but then being the eternal son of God, he is the only one who can pay the eternal wrath of a holy and just God against our sin. And I've said this before, because when one sin is committed against God, it leaves the realm of time and space and gets into the realm of eternity because we have just attacked an eternal being and it becomes an eternal affront, an eternal dishonoring, an eternal disobedience because, you see, there is no time in God. He is an eternal being. And so even one sin takes on eternal ramifications with God because of who he is. And only the eternal God can pay the consequences of our sin committed in a time frame, but becoming an eternal affront and dishonor of this God. 
And this is why the Jehovah's Witness God can never save a frog. Because he's not eternal. He is a created being. And a created being, created in a time context, having a beginning, cannot take unto himself the eternal punishment. Cannot bear in himself the eternal dishonor. Cannot wear in himself the eternal pollution and degradation of our sin. He can't do it. Only the eternal Son of God can do this and pay for our sin. So this is what's wrong with, for instance, Jehovah's Witness. This is the essence of where they have misinterpreted and the devil has deceived them into a lie. And so all humanity died in Adam. And for us to live, the Son of God takes into himself a human body and soul in the person of Jesus. In order to be tempted in his humanity, not as to his divinity, but in his humanity. So that in the man Jesus, there are two distinct natures, the divine nature and the human nature. That coexist, but are not commingled. They don't become infused with one another. Now, I don't understand much more than that, so don't ask me any questions. Maybe Seriously, maybe Evan can help you. That is called... Theologically, the hypostatic union with the nature of the Son of God and the nature of this man, Jesus. He has a true human nature, as we all do, a human soul, and the nature of the Son of God indwells in this one man. And so when this one man is tempted, he is tempted as to his human nature only. Because James says, what about God's temptation? God cannot be tempted with what? Sin, and that also applies to the Son. But the man Jesus is tempted. The man Jesus will have to undergo the rigors of temptation. Why? Because another man underwent the rigors of temptation. And in order for this man to pay for our sin, he has to experience the same temptations yet without sin. Remember Hebrews 4.15? Yet without sin in order to be the innocent, sinless sacrifice for our sin, in order to take unto himself the degradation and the penalty of our sin to the cross. If he had sinned one time, then it all would have been over. But he wasn't going to sin because God had placed in him the Son of God, and he was infused with the Holy Spirit, remember, filled with the Spirit at the, in the wilderness and moved forward in life under the leadership and the direction of the Holy Spirit. So one of the most wonderful verses in the entire Bible is 1 Corinthians five fifteen twenty two. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He reverses the curse. He came to reverse the curse. He came to open Eden for us again. He came to open it. Galatians 2.20, remember what that says? That's one of the most famous comments that Paul makes. He's talking to the Apostle Peter, and he's talking about Judaism, I mean, Judaizers and the obedience by the law and all that, and Peter's afraid because the Judaizers, those who said you must be circumcised in order to be saved or maintained, they come in, and Peter moves from the Gentiles and over to, I mean, it's a mess. And so Paul says what? I have been What tense is that? I have been what? Crucified with Christ. Now get this this morning. 
every one of us who are believers, and I would hope that all of you are believers in here. How does God see us today? God sees us as having our Adamic nature and the entire penalty of all our sin, past, present, and future, having been nailed to the cross in Christ so that when he suffers the wrath of God, he is paying the penalty that I and you should have paid. And when he dies, the full payment for all our sin has been accomplished. John 19.30. It is paid for, finished. And when he rises, you see, he dies as to our Adamic nature. And he rises from the dead to give us of his own nature. That's who we are. So what does that mean? That when I sin, do I anymore have to be overcome with guilt and fear that God is going to punish me? Yes or no? No. Romans 8.1, For there is therefore no more punishment, condemnation, punishment for those who are in Christ, not for those who live a certain way, but in Christ. And now having been released from that fear and from that bondage to sin, I am now freed by the Spirit to begin to listen to the Holy Spirit, to begin to go to God and say, Father, I have sinned. Cleanse me. Give me the power by the Spirit to be repenting. Give me a repentant heart and I can be healed of that the holy spirit can overcome that he can deal with that he can whatever and i can move forward so now in christ i repent of sin not to be forgiven but because in christ i and you have been forgiven all our sin colossians 2 13 first john 1 7 so let's make sure The devil wants to continue to tempt us and to bind us as God's people. But what? I ain't going to be bound no more by my sin. I am not going to be bound by my sin anymore. Do you understand what I mean? Peter Davidson is not going to be bound by his sin. Why? Because that means that I'm better than Bob Swanson? No. Chris, I'm better than you? No. Sissy, I'm better than you. Sherry? Because I'm in Christ. So how many of us today can get this and say, beginning today, I will no longer be bound by my sin. Why? He's freed me. And whom the Son sets free, remember John 13, what? Is free indeed. I've been freed, not from sinning, but being enslaved to and bound by and incarcerated by my sin. It has nothing to do now with should I sin and I should certainly be very repentant and upset by my sin, etc. But no more enslaved by my sin. 
So this is why the Son of God was anointed and empowered by the Spirit in the wilderness. He was anointed and empowered in his humanity in the wilderness in order to, as a man, he must face the same rigors of temptation that Adam faced in the wilderness. Jesus entered the wilderness to face Satan as God's last Adam, to obey where Adam disobeyed, to be qualified, to be qualified through his obedience. And he's the only man who is qualified through his works. None of us are qualified, but in him I have been qualified. Amen? You understand? I have been qualified, but where? In him. Not because of my works, but because in him he has been qualified through his obedience. Therefore, in Christ, I have been qualified to be a son of God. Amen? I have been, not by my works, but by the works of Christ being set on my account. And the qualification and the accept, acceptance of God of this merit that Christ earned at the cross and through his old life of obedience has now been set upon me as a stamp of qualification in Christ. So don't ever think, oh, Oh, no. you see, there is a place where none of us are worthy. Worthy what? Unworthy as to our personal qualification and works. Do we get it? But now that we have become the children of God, we are the most valuable commodity that God has. I in Christ or am now worthy. I am worthy to receive the ministry of God. I am worthy to call God my Father. I am worthy to expect God to pour out his blessings upon me. I am worthy to be, uh, to have the Holy Spirit minister to me and correct me and to lead me. I am worthy. How? Intrinsically so? No. But positionally so. Do we get that? So what does Peter say after they've been beaten and all that and they got out? He says, thank you Lord, that you, we are worthy to be persecuted for you. Do we see that? Get what the devil is doing to you. I'm not worthy, and I shouldn't do that. I am worthy. Phil, how? In Christ, brother. In Christ. Now, which one of us in this room is more worthy than others? Certainly the pastor, right? We have three elders in here, Bill, Phil, and Peter. Well, certainly we're the most worthy, right, brothers? Bill, we're the most worthy, right? Well, of course not. Of course not. Who is the most worthy person in here? Christ. And we are all equally worthy. Equally worthy. But what happens when I sin? Doug, what happens? I'm still worthy. Cynthia, what happens when you don't come to Sunday school. Well, let's get a better example. <laughs> what happens when you miss school of the word? You're still what? Worthy. What happens when one of us slander another one? We're still God's worthy children. Worthy of what? Worthy of receiving and walking and then giving God's grace to others. Kurt, I'm still worthy. Are you worthy? Any feeling of unworth this morning as to walking with God and receiving from him? I'm still worthy. And I don't know why. I, I didn't mean to take this time in doing this. I thought it would be much faster through this today. But I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm all right to be led in a certain way that I didn't plan to be led by. I'm all right to be that way. If it's God, it's great. If it isn't, he'll correct me. We're worthy. 
not because of the works done by the flesh, the works of the law, but because another man was led to obey and beginning in the wilderness, that obedience was set forth perfectly all the way to the cross, even to death on the cross, Paul puts it in Philippians 2. And so you see, in his obedience, in Jesus' obedience, listen one more time and I'll end here. In Jesus' obedience, he represented us so that in his obedience, I'm sorry, so that his obedience would be credited to us. Listen to what Paul says, Romans 5, 19. The many will be made righteous. So this morning, yes, Peter Davidson sins. Just ask Jean if I am perfect. Go ahead and ask her. But wait a long time for the answer because there's going to be a lot of answer there. But what does that mean? That means that I have been seen by God the Father. Now listen to me carefully. In Christ, I have been seen by God the Father as having perfectly obeyed all his law. Otherwise, I could not be made righteous. You remember what righteous means. We have to see this in order to walk free of the stumbling blocks that Satan loves to put in our lives when we do wrong. This is partly what it means to be free. Do you see yourself, even when you sin, that God sees us, credits to us, the perfect obedience of his son, and is now dealing with those issues in my life that are not manifesting that obedience as he deals with my sin and disobedience, not for the purpose of doing anything but bringing about a fuller and fullerer, you know, more full and more full, or fullerer and fullerer, manifestation of the perfection of the obedience of God's Son, which has been credited to me in the resurrection. See this and become more and more free. Not free from obeying God, but free to hear from the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit, to obey the Holy Spirit. Free. Free from the entanglements of what that world says is important and what the flesh wants to do. I'm being made what? More and more free to manifest the obedience of God's Son. See you next week.